Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's story time. Welcome back. Thank you so much for sticking with me to episode two. I'm so glad to have you here. And thank you to everyone who listened to the first episode of Storytime for Grownups. I have been absolutely overwhelmed by the response. You've all been so kind to write to me via my website and to contact me via X and all the other places where you've reached out to tell me that you enjoyed the episode and that means so much to me and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so I'm so excited. I'm I'm so excited to continue reading Jane Eyre with you. And if you're new, I'm so glad that you're here if you missed episode one, but I do recommend that you go back, pause this one, and go back to episode one because we are reading Jane Eyre chapter by chapter and pausing from time to time for some notes and explanations. So you'll want to go back and start at the beginning with chapter one. Otherwise, you might be a little bit confused because this is episode two and we're going to be reading chapter two of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Before we get started, I just want to remind you that you can find out more about me and the things that I'm doing on my website, faithkmore.com. You can also find me on X at faithkmore. And if you're interested, you can buy my novel, Christmas Carol, on Amazon, um, or my nonfiction book, Saving Cinderella, What Feminists Get Wrong About Disney Princesses and How to Set It Right. You can find that on Amazon as well. So I hope you'll go and pick up um, some of those books if you haven't already. So as I mentioned in the last episode, I am going to be taking questions from you about the chapters that we read and you can submit those to me and then I will feature a couple of them at the start of each episode. And by questions, I mean if there were things about the chapter that you didn't quite understand or you wanted me to clarify a bit further, you could ask me about that. If there were things that just really interested you and you wanted to comment on something or if you think that you understand something but you wanted to ask if you're correct then you can contact me via my website, faithkmore.com, and there's a little button there called contact. You can click on that and send your questions that way. There's also a link to that contact page right here in the show notes. You can click on that. You can also just find me on X at faithkmore, and you can X at me, tweet at me, or um, send me a, a direct message right there. And those are all great ways to get the questions to me. So I received some lovely questions um, about chapter one, and I'm very excited to start off the episode by answering two of them. So thank you. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. I'm not going to be able to answer every single question that I get, but I so appreciate you writing in. So keep those questions coming. So just to remind you where we left off in chapter one, before we get to the question. So you remember what we're talking about. So Jane had gotten into a physical fight with John Reed, the son of Mrs. Reed, who is Jane's guardian. And Mrs. Reed had ordered that Jane be locked away in the red room. So the first question comes to us from Charles. He says, 
you found just the right amount of simplifying the story and clarifying the SAT words. Thank you, Charles. But what I don't understand is what is she doing in the house? So she, Jane, what is she doing in the house? Is she a guest? Could her own mother and brother be mistreating her so? So, right, so this question is about the relationship between Jane and Mrs. Reed and Mrs. Reed's children, John, Eliza, and Georgiana. So I love this question because actually this is what we're supposed to be wondering right now. We don't actually have the complete answer and Charlotte Bronte wants us to be wondering this. The thing that we can be fairly sure of as readers at this point in the story is that Mrs. Reed is not Jane's actual mother, which means that these children are not her siblings because, first of all, because she calls her Mrs. Reed instead of mama or mother or something like that, and also because um, she, at, at one point, John... John Reed tells Jane that she's a dependent, that she has no money, and everything in the house belongs not to her, but to him, to John Reed. And so a dependent would have been someone who was, for some reason, kind of beholden to this family, had been taken in by them for some reason that we don't yet know. So we know that she's not their daughter. She know, we know that she's not Mrs. Reed's daughter. She's not the sibling of John, Eliza, and Georgiana. But we don't yet know, but we will soon, we don't yet know what she's doing there. But clearly, she is not viewed as a member of the family, and she is not well-liked by the family members. So I love this question because it it is how we're supposed to be thinking right now. So it means that we're following along, following along very well, and we wonder what we're supposed to wonder, which is what the heck is going on here with Jane and why is she being so horribly mistreated by this family that she's living with. So hopefully we will get more information as we go along, perhaps even in this chapter. So that was the first question. The second question comes to us from David. David says, what was the point of the very detailed passages from Bewick's History of British Birds? I must say it made for a challenging start to the book on only the second page of my copy. Were they a parallel to Jane's situation at the Reed's house? Are the solitary rocks and promontories of Bewick's meant to connect with or describe Jane's perch in the window seat? Are the shipwrecks a foreshadowing device of future doom for Jane? I like literature a lot and have read quite a bit, but these paragraphs were challenging for me. Yes, I think they're challenging for many people, David, and I love that you brought this up. The reason I love it is because we can talk, and I will briefly just for a second, about what the heck is going on with these birds and why the birds are there and why she's reading this book and why Charlotte Bronte goes on and on about the birds. However, it's also important to note that if you just kind of want to skip over the fact that she reads all about these birds, that's okay. The birds don't actually really have anything to do with the story. You're not missing out if you kind of skimmed that part or you didn't get it or whatever. It, that's okay. And that's okay in general. And it's fine to have sections of books like this that you sort of skim over and think like, okay, that was weird, but let's keep going. And what is the actual story here? So just to let you know, right at the start, the birds are not going to come back or be important. They're not like a major plot twist that's coming. So let's start there. But then, you know, I'm always in favor of a deep dive. So, and I love to do that kind of thing. So just very briefly, my sense of what's going on with the birds and Bewick's history of British birds is a couple of things. One is birds are a kind of motif in the book, as you'll see later, they do come up again. And so, and when they come up, they do symbolize in some way Jane herself. So I think what David is saying here is correct, that there is a connection between Jane and the birds that she's reading about, particularly here in this section, 
because she feels so alone in the Reed family and so lost. She feels like she is a bird in one of these desolate places that are being described in Bewick's History of British Birds. And later in the story, she will describe herself as a bird in a sort of pivotal scene that's coming up. So I think, you know, if you are the kind of person that likes to look out for the kinds of metaphors and, and symbolism that authors choose to put in the in their books, I would say, yes, keep an eye out for birds and birds as they relate to Jane. Okay, so those are our questions for the day. Remember, you can submit questions about the upcoming chapter, chapter two. I hope that you will. I love these questions and I'm really excited and happy to talk about them. So please click that link to contact me in the show notes and get your questions in for chapter two so that you can be featured in the next episode. All right, let's get started, everyone. It's story time. Chapter two. I resisted all the way a new thing for me, and a circumstance which greatly strengthened the bad opinion Bessie and Miss Abbott were disposed to entertain of me. The fact is, I was a trifle beside myself, or out of myself, as the French would say. I was conscious that a moment's mutiny had already rendered me liable to strange penalties, and, like any other rebel slave, I felt resolved in my desperation to go all lengths. Hold her arms, Miss Abbott, she's like a mad cat! For shame, for shame, cried the lady's maid. What shocking conduct, Miss Eyre, to strike a young gentleman, your benefactress's son, your young master. Master? How is he my master? Am I a servant? No, you are less than a servant, for you do nothing for your keep. There, sit down and think over your wickedness. They had got me by this time into the apartment indicated by Mrs. Reed and had thrust me upon a stool. My impulse was to rise from it like a spring. Their two pair of hands arrested me instantly. If you don't sit still, you must be tied down, said Bessie. Miss Abbott, lend me your garters. She would break mine directly. Miss Abbott turned to divest a stout leg of the necessary ligature. This preparation for bonds and the additional ignominy it inferred took a little of the excitement out of me. So ignominy means like public shame. And so the, the servants are threatening to tie her down with their garters, which is a piece of fabric that would have been tied around their legs to hold up their stockings. And Bessie says that they should use Abbott's garters, basically because Abbott is bigger, so her garters are longer. And this makes Jane stop fighting them because she doesn't want to be tied up. Don't take them off, I cried. I will not stir. In guarantee whereof, I attached myself to my seat by my hands. Mind you don't, said Bessie. And when she had ascertained that I was really subsiding, she loosened her hold of me. Then she and Miss Abbott stood with folded arms, looking darkly and doubtfully on my face, as incredulous of my sanity. She never did so before, at last said Bessie, turning to the Abigail. And Abigail is a lady's maid, so this is Abbott, Mrs. Reed's personal servant. But it was always in her, was the reply. I've told Mrs. Often my opinion about the child, and Mrs. agreed with me. She's an underhand little thing. I never saw a girl of her age with so much cover. So she's saying Jane is deceitful. She's a liar. Bessie answered not, but ere long, addressing me, she said, You ought to be aware, miss, that you are under obligations to Mrs. Reed. She keeps you. If she were to turn you off, you would have to go to the poorhouse. I had nothing to say to these words. They were not new to me. My very first recollections of existence included hints of the same kind. 
This reproach of my dependence had become a vague sing-song in my ear, very painful and crushing, but only half intelligible. People are always telling Jane how indebted she is to Mrs. Reed, and that without her she'd be in the poorhouse, which was like a, an awful homeless shelter that existed at the time. Miss Abbott joined in. And you ought not to think yourself on an equality with the Mrs. Reed and Master Reed, because Mrs. Kindly allows you to be brought up with them. They will have a great deal of money, and you will have none. It is your place to be humble and to try to make yourself agreeable to them. What we tell you is for your own good, added Bessie in no harsh voice. You should try to be useful and pleasant. Then, perhaps, you would have a home here. But if you become passionate and rude, Mrs. will send you away, I am sure. Besides, said Miss Abbott, God will punish her. He might strike her dead in the midst of her tantrums, and then where would she go? Come, Bessie, we will leave her. I wouldn't have her heart for anything. Say your prayers, Miss Eyre, when you are by yourself. For if you don't repent, something bad might be permitted to come down the chimney and fetch you away. They went, shutting the door and locking it behind them. The Red Room was a square chamber, very seldom slept in. I might say never, indeed, unless when a chance influx of visitors at Gateshead Hall rendered it necessary to turn to account all the accommodation it contained. Yet it was one of the largest and stateliest chambers in the mansion. So the Red Room is a bedroom in the house in Gateshead Hall, and it's hardly ever used except for when they have so many guests that every room has to be used. A bed, supported on massive pillars of mahogany, hung with curtains of deep red damask, stood out like a tabernacle in the center. The two large windows, with their blinds always drawn down, were half shrouded in festoons and falls of similar drapery. The carpet was red. The table at the foot of the bed was covered with a crimson cloth. The walls were a soft fawn color with a blush of pink in it. The wardrobe, the toilet table, the chairs were of darkly polished old mahogany. Out of these deep surrounding shades rose high and glared white the piled-up mattresses and pillows of the bed, spread with a snowy Marseille counterpane. Scarcely less prominent was an ample cushioned easy chair near the head of the bed, also white, with a footstool before it, and looking, as I thought, like a pale throne. This room was chill because it seldom had a fire. It was silent because remote from the nursery and kitchen. Solemn, because it was known to be so seldom entered. The housemaid alone came here on Saturdays to wipe from the mirrors and the furniture a week's quiet dust. And Mrs. Reed herself, at far intervals, visited it to review the contents of a certain secret drawer in the wardrobe, where were stored diverse parchments, her jewel casket, and a miniature of her deceased husband. And in those last words lies the secret of the Red Room, the spell which kept it so lonely in spite of its grandeur. Mr. Reed had been dead nine years. It was in this chamber he breathed his last. Here he lay in state, hence his coffin was borne by the undertaker's men, and since that day a sense of dreary consecration had guarded it from frequent intrusion. Okay, so the reason that no one ever comes in here is because Mr. Reed, Mrs. Reed's husband, died here and lay in state here before his burial. My seat, to which Bessie and the bitter Miss Abbott had left me riveted, was a low ottoman near the marble chimney piece. The bed rose before me. To my right hand there was the high, dark wardrobe, with subdued, broken reflections varying the gloss of its panels. To my left were the muffled windows, 
a great looking-glass between them repeated the vacant majesty of the bed and room. I was not quite sure whether they had locked the door, and when I dared move, I got up and went to see. Alas, yes, no jail was ever more secure. Returning, I had to cross before the looking-glass. My fascinated glance involuntarily explored the depth it revealed. All looked colder and darker in that visionary hollow than in reality, and the strange little figure there gazing at me, with a white face and arms specking the gloom, and glittering eyes of fear moving where all else was still, had the effect of a real spirit. So she's locked in this room where Mr. Reed died, which is creepy, and so she catches her own reflection in the mirror, and she scares herself because she looks like a ghost. I thought it like one of the tiny phantoms, half fairy, half imp, Bessie's evening stories represented as coming out of lone, ferny dells and moors, and appearing before the eyes of belated travelers. I returned to my stool. Superstition was with me at that moment, but it was not yet her hour for complete victory. So she's scared, but she's not completely terrified because it's not dark yet, and she's basically okay. My blood was still warm. The mood of the revolted slave was still bracing me with its bitter vigor. I had to stem a rapid rush of retrospective thought before I quailed to the dismal present. So because she's still angry about what happened, she's not scared yet. All John Reed's violent tyrannies, all his sister's proud indifference, all his mother's aversion, all the servant's partiality turned up in my disturbed mind like a dark deposit in a turbid well. Why was I always suffering? Always browbeaten? Always accused? Forever condemned? Why could I never please? Why was it useless to try to win anyone's favor? Eliza, who was headstrong and selfish, was respected. Georgiana, who had a spoiled temper, a very acrid spite, a captious and insolent carriage, was universally indulged. So captious means finding fault all the time. So Georgiana is rude and spoiled, but everybody seems to like her. Her beauty, her pink cheeks and golden curls seemed to give delight to all who looked at her and to purchase indemnity for every fault. John, no one thwarted, much less punished, though he twisted the necks of the pigeons, killed the little peachecks, set the dogs at the sheep, stripped the hothouse vines of their fruit, and broke the buds off the choicest plants in the conservatory. He called his mother old girl, too, sometimes reviled her for her dark skin similar to his own, bluntly disregarded her wishes, not unfrequently tore and spoiled her silk attire, and he was still her own darling. I dared commit no fault. I strove to fulfill every duty, and I was termed naughty and tiresome, sullen and sneaking, from morning to noon and from noon to night. My head still ached and bled with the blow and fall I had received. No one had reproved John for wantonly striking me. And because I had turned against him to avert farther irrational violence, I was loaded with general opprobrium. Opprobrium is harsh criticism. Unjust, unjust, said my reason, forced by the agonizing stimulus into precocious though transitory power. And resolve, equally wrought up, instigated some strange expedient to achieve escape from insupportable oppression. As running away, or, if that could not be affected, never eating or drinking more and letting myself die. So having taken all the punishment and criticism up to now, quietly, she's really angry and she's thinking about running away or even committing suicide. What a consternation of soul was mine that dreary afternoon. 
how all my brain was in tumult and all my heart in insurrection. Yet in what darkness, what dense ignorance was the mental battle fought? I could not answer the ceaseless inward question why I had thus suffered. Now, at the distance of, I will not say how many years, I see it clearly. I was a discord in Gateshead Hall. I was like nobody there. I had nothing in harmony with Mrs. Reed or her children or her chosen vassalage. The vassalage would be like the servants, so she's not like Mrs. Reed, she's not like the children, and she's not like the servants. If they did not love me, in fact, as little did I love them. They were not bound to regard with affection a thing that could not sympathize with one amongst them. A heterogeneous thing, opposed to them in temperament, in capacity, in propensities. A useless thing, incapable of serving their interest or adding to their pleasure. A noxious thing, cherishing the germs of indignation at their treatment, of contempt of their judgment. I know that had I been a sanguine, brilliant, careless, exacting, handsome, romping child, though equally dependent and friendless, Mrs. Reed would have endured my presence more complacently. Her children would have entertained for me more of the cordiality of fellow feeling. The servants would have been less prone to make me the scapegoat of the nursery. Daylight began to forsake the Red Room. It was past four o'clock, and the beclouded afternoon was tending to drear twilight. I heard the rain still beating continuously on the staircase window, and the wind howling in the grove behind the hall. I grew by degrees cold as a stone, and then my courage sank. My habitual mood of humiliation, self-doubt, forlorn depression, fell damp on the embers of my decaying ire. All said I was wicked, and perhaps I might be so. What thought had I been just conceiving of starving myself to death? That certainly was a crime. And was I fit to die? Or was the vault under the chancel of Gateshead Church an inviting born? And now it's getting darker, and so her anger and her resolve to do something about her situation are fading away, and her wish to die seems unwise. In such vault, I had been told, did Mr. Reed lie buried? And led by this thought to recall his idea, I dwelt on it with gathering dread. I could not remember him, but I knew that he was my own uncle, my mother's brother, that he had taken me when a parentless infant to his house, and that in his last moments he had required a promise of Mrs. Reed that she would rear and maintain me as one of her own children. Okay, so Mrs. Reed's husband, Mr. Reed, it turns out, was Jane's uncle. And he'd taken her in because she was orphaned as an infant, and she was penniless. So he took her in out of charity, and then on his deathbed, he made Mrs. Reed promise to take care of her as if she was one of Mrs. Reed's own children. Mrs. Reed probably considered she had kept this promise. And so she had, I dare say, as well as her nature would permit her. But how could she really like an interloper not of her race, and unconnected with her after her husband's death by any tie? Of her race just means her blood relation, so it's not like Jane is a different race than Mrs. Reed. It must have been most irksome to find herself bound by a hard-wrung pledge to stand in the stead of a parent to a strange child she could not love, and to see an uncongenial alien permanently intruded on her own family group. A singular notion dawned upon me. I doubted not, never doubted, that if Mr. Reed had been alive, he would have treated me kindly. And now, 
As I sat looking at the white bed and overshadowed walls, occasionally also turning a fascinated eye toward the dimly gleaming mirror, I began to recall what I had heard of dead men, troubled in their graves by the violation of their last wishes, revisiting the earth to punish the perjured and avenge the oppressed. And I thought Mr. Reed's spirit, harassed by the wrongs of his sister's child, might quit his abode, whether in the church vault or in the unknown world of the departed, and rise before me in this chamber. I wiped my tears and hushed my sobs, fearful lest any sign of violent grief might waken a preternatural voice to comfort me, or elicit from the gloom some haloed face bending over me with strange pity. This idea, consolatory in theory, I felt would be terrible if realized. It would be nice in theory to imagine that an avenging ghost would come and help her, but in reality, it would be terrifying. So she's trying to stop crying and looking sad so that he doesn't actually come and help her. With all my might, I endeavored to stifle it. I endeavored to be firm. Shaking my hair from my eyes, I lifted my head and tried to look boldly around the dark room. At this moment, a light gleamed on the wall. Was it, I asked myself, a ray from the moon penetrating some aperture in the blind? No, moonlight was still, and this stirred. While I gazed, it glided up to the ceiling and quivered over my head. I can now conjecture readily that this streak of light was, in all likelihood, a gleam from a lantern carried by someone across the lawn. But then, prepared as my mind was for horror, shaken as my nerves were by agitation, I thought the swift darting beam was a herald of some coming vision from another world. My heart beat thick. My head grew hot. A sound filled my ears, which I deemed the rushing of wings. Something seemed near me. I was oppressed, suffocated. Endurance broke down. I rushed to the door and shook the lock in desperate effort. Steps came running along the outer passage. The key turned. Bessie and Abbott entered. Miss Eyre, are you ill? said Bessie. What a dreadful noise! It went quite through me! exclaimed Miss Abbott. Take me out! Let me go to the nursery! was my cry. What for? Are you hurt? Have you seen something? again demanded Bessie. Oh, I saw a light and I thought a ghost would come. I had now got hold of Bessie's hand, and she did not snatch it from me. She has screamed on purpose, declared Abbott in some disgust. And what a scream. If she had been in great pain, one would have excused it, but she only wanted to bring us all here. I know her naughty tricks. What is all this? demanded another voice peremptorily. And Mrs. Reed came along the corridor, her cap flying wide, her gown rustling stormily. Abbott and Bessie, I believe I gave orders that Jane Eyre should be left in the Red Room till I came to her myself. Miss Jane screamed so loud, ma'am, pleaded Bessie. Let her go, was the only answer. Loose Bessie's hand, child. You cannot succeed in getting out by these means, be assured. I abhor artifice, particularly in children. It is my duty to show you that tricks will not answer. You will now stay here an hour longer, and it is only on condition of perfect submission and stillness that I shall liberate you then. Oh, aunt, have pity. Forgive me. I cannot endure it. Let me be punished some other way. I shall be killed if... Silence. This violence is all most repulsive. And so no doubt she felt it. I was a precocious actress in her eyes. She sincerely looked on me as a compound of virulent passions, mean spirit, and dangerous duplicity. Bessie and Abbott, having retreated, 
Mrs. Reed, impatient of my now frantic anguish and wild sobs, abruptly thrust me back and locked me in without further parley. I heard her sweeping away, and soon after she was gone, I suppose I had a species of fit. Unconsciousness closed the scene. So she gets back, locked back into the red room and then passes out because she's so scared. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on contact and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued.